You're listening to Women in Revolt, a six-part mini-series about art, activism and the women's movement in the UK in the 1970s and 80s. I'm Lindsay Young. I'm a curator, and since 2017, I've been researching the art and artists that feature in Women in Revolt, an exhibition on between November 2023 and August 2025, starting at Tate Britain in London, and then at National Galleries of Scotland Modern in Edinburgh, and lastly at the Whitworth in Manchester. Throughout my research for the show, I've been meeting artists, makers and activists and hearing about their experience living through a time of extreme social, economic and political change, exploring how their art and ideas forged a path and learning about the great debt women of my generation owe to them. In this third episode of our podcast, we'll hear from women who worked in and around the independent music scene of the late 1970s and early 1980s. Gina Birch, Caroline Kuhn and Lucy Whitman, perhaps better known as Lucy Toothpaste, who were closely involved in punk, and Cozy Fanny Tutti, who was a pioneer of industrial music. Before we start, I should warn that this episode includes references to self-harm, sexual assault, rape, racist violence and sex work. We'll be hearing how punk and the underground music scene liberated women from expectations about how they should behave how it created a space for them to express themselves on their own terms and explore issues of sexuality, power and control. It's a close-up on my face of me screaming. I'm actually quite shy, and I think that's quite funny, that actually there's a really shy person screaming, and it's quite kind of internalised in a way. There's a kind of internal pain in it. It's kind of not a blaming scream. It's not a scream like, you're hurting me. It's a scream like, inside... There's pain inside I'm hurting. And I'm not sure if I'm allowed to express it somehow. It's like, am I allowed to do this? Is anybody listening? Has anybody ever listened to me? Does anybody give a shit? Does anybody care what I think or feel? I feel for that young woman who wasn't sure who she was, but still had the nerve to do it. And in a way, that's a bit like the raincoats. We had to have some nerve to do it. That was Gina Birch, artist and member of punk band The Raincoats. She was talking about a film she made when she was at art school in 1977 called Three Minute Scream. In many ways, it's a metaphor for punk. For women in particular, punk was very much about having the nerve to do it, to defy conventions, form their own bands, tell their own stories, express themselves. People forget that the very early punks were self-harming. The distress, the lack of opportunity, the distress at the poverty, their distress at the dereliction around them, they were hurting themselves in their despair. They were cutting themselves. They were smearing blood, their own blood over their bodies. If I was interviewing one of the bands, they would be having burn marks from their cigarette burns on their arms. They were so distressed. 
That was artist Caroline Kuhn. Caroline had been a hippie in the 1960s and had co-founded the drug advice agency Release. When punk emerged in 1975, she was working as a music journalist, earning money to support herself as a painter. My teenage years had been in the 60s and it seemed as if all the protests that we had been making as a hippie with peace and love, by the time the 1970s occurred, looked as if we had categorically failed. I was really upset of my personal failure at trying to change the law in relating to drugs, my personal failure in trying to progress the status of women. And I felt a kind of an anger from people who were a decade younger than me. And I was wondering how they would react to the failure of the establishment and also the failure of their brothers and sisters who were maybe a decade older than them. And so I was looking out for what's happening next. I was anticipating another surge of youth. But instead of being peace and love, it was going to be something far more aggressive. I was living in the Portobello Hotel, reviewing records and writing for the music press. And one of the young barmen recognised who I was and said to me, you know, you, you must see this new band called the Sex Pistols. And it was kind of like a, a, a blinding flash of a moment where I realised if there is a young band of teenagers calling themselves Sex Pistols, sex in the opposite to love, pistols in the opposite to peace, this was the, the zeitgeist change that I was anticipating. Caroline went to see them perform and was filled with a kind of glee. I was thrilled with the energy and the anger. I was thrilled that youth wasn't going to passively take it. And not only so there was the, just the esprit de corps, there was just the spirit of what they were giving to the audience, but also it was the look. And I think that one of the things that is so noticeable of any era is how young people with very little money, or the street, as we might say, dress to express what they feel. And their look was the opposite to the hippie look. It was hard, torn, holes. And there, were, you know, there was a personal thrill because, to me, it was also very liberating. And I was beginning to see there were women in the audience who had the same angry feel to the use of their colleagues and their lovers, actually, up on stage. When she was at the gig, record producer Bernie Rose came running up to her. So I've got a band too. They're in rehearsal. They're called The Clash. And just the language was already setting the scene for what the punk movement was going to be about. And I called it a movement when I began writing about it because I knew how ferocious the establishment was to youth and to protest. And I thought if I group together what's happening as a movement, there will be some kind of safety in numbers. You know, we're not just independent bands. We are part of this new protest movement against the failing, as usual, authority of the state. After that early Sex Pistols gig, Caroline took the story to an editorial meeting at Melody Maker magazine. She was the only woman at the meeting. She proposed that she write about these new bands and this new stirring in youth culture, but her suggestion was completely dismissed. 
but that didn't stop her. I bought myself a Nikon and decided if the melody maker wasn't interested, just for my own intellectual satisfaction, going to see whether my prediction of theory and how history develops and sociology, whether I'm right. And so I began um, interviewing the bands, photographing the bands. So my photographs, I'm just using my artist's eye. I have no real photographic technique which distresses me greatly now as it did then because um, I'd be at a gig not knowing when I got back to the darkroom whether anything on my film would actually register. I wish that I had been able to be more experimental with my technique. They're not technically very good, but they are absolutely photojournalists of the moment when nobody else was really looking. Caroline's early photographs capture how small the early punk scene was. One of her photographs shows Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols sitting by the side of the stage with musician Viv Albertine and singer Susie Sue. So Viv Albertine is just a fan and a close friend of one of the musicians. And Susie is just looking on. Susie gets up on stage and then becomes Susie and the Banshees. And Viv Albertine comes the slits. We'll hear more about the Slits later. They were a hugely influential all-women punk band formed in 1976. So I like that kind of very early moment when the movement is just stirring and how important it is to see up on stage something that you want to achieve yourself. And that kind of becomes like a whole metaphor of what was going on. You know, oh, I can be up on stage too. And so there was that do-it-yourself aesthetic And I had done it myself by having to buy a camera to make the photographs. And here am I photographing the young teenagers who are going to do it themselves and get up on stage. I'm not just going to be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I'm going to be the lead singer. I'm going to be the bass player. I'm going to be up there on stage. Caroline's photos would make it into articles, onto record covers, and eventually into her own book, 1988, The New Wave Punk Explosion. There were other young women around also making their mark as journalists, filmmakers and photographers. They would meet up to support each other and share stories about their experiences in a very macho industry. We're very private about it, actually, because if any of us say that going to this gig, I was propositioned, somebody attempted to rape me, I was raped. If we put that into anything that we were writing, we would have never have been able to write again. It's interesting because although the men were able to do new journalism and put themselves into their pieces and talk about hanging out with the musicians, taking drugs and doing whatever, you know, this bonzo journalism, women couldn't do that because our stories, on the whole, were about the misbehaviour that we were having to deal with. As punk bands got more coverage, their audiences started to grow. I'm Lucy Whitman. A long time ago, I started my own punk fanzine called Jolt, and gave myself the name Lucy Toothpaste, so a lot of people still know me by that name. The first punk gig I went to was at Walthamstow Town Hall, June 1976, and on the bill were the Sex Pistols, the Stranglers, and Ian Jury and the Blockheads. I found the whole thing very entertaining, I would say. I could tell straight away the Stranglers were extremely sexist and 
before long I'd concluded they weren't punks at all because they were a lot older than everybody else. They could play their instruments perfectly. They were just a rock and roll band who jumped on that bandwagon. But Sex Pistols did intrigue me. And then after that, I started going to quite a few gigs. So what was the appeal of punk to fans like Lucy? Punk excited me because it was very, very amusing. (laughs) Actually, in my opinion, punk was really performance art more than music. I mean, some of the bands went on to become sort of proper rock bands like The Clash. But a lot of the bands, it was more a statement rather than music making. People were dressing up in all sorts of entertaining clothes. The lyrics of the songs, that was one of the things which appealed to me because the lyrics were very witty, very challenging. So there was something about young people expressing themselves very articulately and challenging the status quo in a way that, in my experience, popular music hadn't done. And it was all happening at the time of great political turmoil, really. And the most, for me, the most obvious part of that was the rise of the National Front. People have to have it pointed out to them just how powerful they were becoming, actually. By the mid-1970s, the National Front, a far-right political party, was attracting large numbers of votes in local and national elections. The National Front did what racists and fascists always do, which is try to use discontent and uh, division in society. They had a sort of two-pronged approach, which was they were trying to pretend to be respectable and gain council seats. And at the same time, there were a lot of really terrifying and brutal attacks, mainly on Asian people. And they were very deliberately trying to reach uh, young people and they were leafleting outside schools and so forth. And it really could have gone either way because there was a lot of anger, frustration. I mean, that's punk did articulate a lot of the frustration of young people who were unemployed and didn't have a chance of going to college or anything. They had nothing to do. And so there were songs, you know, about having no future and boredom. So that was all real and there were no facilities for young people. So people did feel that life was a blank, really. With this level of frustration and disaffection, it could have been easy for groups like the National Front to recruit young white punks to their ranks. And some punks were drawn to them. Punk wasn't homogenous. I think that's the thing. So it was absolutely full of contradictions. Also, punk loved to explore or kind of feast on contradictions anyway. So a lot of things that people might wear or say were double-edged, you know, sort of were they ironic or were they not. I will never forgive them, actually, for wearing swastikas. They seemed to think that was radical or sort of dangerous or something. You can see this in one of Caroline Kuhn's photographs, which shows Susie Sue at a gig wearing a swastika armband that had been handed to her by Malcolm McLaren, the manager of the Sex Pistols. I think the only reason that that caught on was because It was our parents' generation who'd been through the war. And so the Nazis were still the bogeymen. So to pretend that there was something exciting about the Nazis was just a way of sort of being rude to your parents, really. But people didn't 
know what it meant. They had no idea what fascism or national socialism was. Lucy saw a real need to raise people's awareness. It was a reason for her starting her fanzine Jolt in 1977, which included articles about fascism and racism. She'd go on to write about these issues for Temporary Hoarding, the fanzine produced by Rock Against Racism, a movement that put on gigs and festivals to bring black and white musicians and fans together in solidarity against racism. But back to Lucy's fanzine Jolt. Jolt was a fanzine which I made almost all on my own. I did have some help from some friends and a lot of help from my sister who did some fantastic drawings for it. But it was my conception and I was in charge. I started Jolt because in the punk explosion which had happened in 1976, one of the features was these fanzines which were created by fans and just were photocopied, stapled together and sold in places like Rough Trade and a bookshop that used to be in um, Camden Town called Compendium. One of the great things about it was it was do-it-yourself, so I did it in my bedroom, literally, just using pieces of A4 paper, a lot of cutting up of newspaper clippings, so I was very, very influenced by collage, and I'd been to see a Kurt Schwitter's exhibition the year before, I think, and very interested in collage as a way of juxtaposing different ideas next to each other. So I tore up lots of bits of newsprint from the music press and from Socialist Worker or the Hornsey Journal or whatever and sort of put them together and I, I did some of it on my little portable typewriter, my Olivetti Letera 32, and I did some of it by hand and I took some photos of gigs when I went to them. I stuck things down with... Cowgum, I think it was. I took my artwork to Bourne and Hollingsworth department store on Oxford Street um, because that was the only place I knew of which had photocopying facilities. And so I just would, would go off to Compendium with a carrier bag full of jolts, you know. As Lucy says, her editions of Jolt featured witty collages, as well as interviews with bands and articles about racism and fascism. From the outset, her aim was to make it a feminist fanzine. In my first issue, I wrote an article about why aren't there more girl bands? And the fact was, it was clear that women were getting involved in punk, but at that point, very early on really, even the Slits hadn't actually done a gig. And people like Susie from Susie and the Banshees, you know, she was a vision who appeared at gigs long before she started doing her own gigs. So there was this feeling that this was a moment when women or young women, girls, could could get involved in bands in the same way that boys had always. So I wanted to encourage that. Lucy's call to action was answered when the Slits themselves knocked on her door to see if she knew anybody who could be a bass player. Being that rare thing, an all-women band, the Slits would inspire other women to have a go like Gina Birch, who we heard from at the start of this episode. In 1977, Gina was studying at Hornsey School of Art and living in a squat in West London. There were lots of empty properties at that time that people occupied as squats. She found herself surrounded by artists, musicians and writers. I was quite besotted with the whole punk thing, you know, the the Sex Pistols, the Clash, the Subway Sect, so many amazing groups, so much... um, so much energy and it felt so different from the rock that you knew 
and had gone before. It was it was a whole different proposition, really. And I remember seeing Subway Sect, and uh, Vic Gardard had a music stand with the lyrics on, and so he'd just written them that afternoon. And there was this whole thing of, at that time of the immediacy of it. You don't have to be brilliant at this. You just have to do it. So you could not be doing it in the morning and then doing it in the afternoon. That's how it kind of felt. And so we were great fans, you know. It was, it was an extraordinary thing. And all the people that were involved just seemed so exciting. It was nearly all boys. I mean, there were a few girls here and there. And, of course, there was polystyrene in X-ray specs and gay advert playing bass in the adverts. And, you know, there was a smattering of girls. But the thing is, the girls were just, like, over there somewhere. They weren't girls that I liked. I know that. I understand that. I get that. They were like any of the boys in the band. They were just like far away from me. And then one day, Palmolive said that her band were going to be playing a gig. Palmolive was Gina's neighbour's sister and the band was The Slits. It was their first ever gig in Harlesden, West London. There were lots of other people on the bill. I think The Slits were the first ones on. But um, they were the only ones I remember from that night. There were four young women on the stage. I mean, I think Ari was 14, so I could call her a girl. Ari, or Ari Up, was the lead singer. They were singing songs that were so unlike the things the boys were singing. And Palmolive and Ari were kind of almost having a fight. When Palmolive seemed to go out of time, Ari would turn around and Palmolive would throw the sticks at her. But there was this kind of intense kind of feistiness, beautiful feistiness about them that I completely identified with. I just knew that this was for me. These songs were for me. They were about me. They were for me. You know, there were songs about shoplifting. There were songs about the awfulness of certain pop radio stations. There were things about new towns. And Palmolive had written a lot of the songs and they were just so, so funny and so great. And I thought, this is it. This is for me. And I just wanted to be there. You know, I I knew at that moment that I was going to try to do something like that because it really, really felt like a possibility suddenly from never thinking in a million years. When I went to the gig, it never occurred to me I'd be in a band. And I came home wanting to be in a band. And that's quite a revelation, isn't it? It's quite a a thing to suddenly have that transformation. I couldn't play an instrument. I hadn't got any instruments. I didn't write poems, didn't write really much at all. And yet I, I knew that somehow that was it. Gina discussed this idea with her friend from art school, Anna De Silva. When Anna went off to Madeira, Gina bought herself a bass guitar. She taught herself to play it by listening to Toots and the Maytals albums. Anna came back from Madeira, heard through the grapevine I'd bought a bass, and contacted me and we got together and we tried to write a song. And what happened was then Richard Dudansky, my neighbour was playing with Time and Dog, and he said, you have to come and play with us at the Tabernacle. 
And we were like, no, we don't know what we're doing. He was like, you can do it, you can do it. And so in the true spirit of punk, about four weeks after we'd started, we were playing on the stage. This was the start of the trailblazing band, The Raincoats. They would be recognised by a whole new generation when in the 1990s, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana called them his favourite band and when Kathleen Hanna of Bikini Kill showed her support for them in her work. But back to 1977. Anna had some lyrics because, you know, she was much more literary than me, having done languages and so on. And I wrote No One's Little Girl, I wrote that because when I came to London, I suddenly had this revelation. I'd always had a boyfriend up until then. And I quite liked the fact that uh, I didn't have to have a boyfriend in punk. And I suddenly could stand on my own two feet. I felt very empowered by all this that was happening. It really kind of filled me up with an idea that I could put myself at the centre of my own life, which hadn't really occurred to me before. The Raincoats would be the first all-women punk band to call themselves feminists. But many young women wanted nothing to do with feminism. The word feminist at the time was a weird word, and I always think it's a patriarchal plot to kind of undermine the idea of feminism. You know, it felt like feminism was seen as, you know, men-hating, ugly women wearing ugly clothes. But what it was, was women trying to find a way to express themselves, a way that came not from the traditions of the patriarchy, not from the male-pleasing clothes, but women finding what they wanted to look like and what they wanted to wear and how they wanted their bodies to be. For many women struggling to get by at the time, feminism and the women's movement just seemed irrelevant. From my experience of feminism back in the 70s, it was mainly people at university or middle-class women that were involved with it. And I was from a working-class background. I was from Hull, where the fishermen's wives were fighting for survival. And they didn't have time for feminism, although they really needed it. But they wouldn't have even, I haven't got time for that. You know, I've I've got like six kids and my husband's probably going to die at sea. You know, I've got a lot to do, thank you very much, without getting into the theory of feminism. So I was behind that. I, I saw them struggling. I saw a lot of women struggling. And my struggle was to say I was thrown out of home at 17, so I had to find my way through the world. And that was what was important to me. That was the centre of my world was survival. Cosy Fanny Tutti here. I'm an artist, musician, multimedia artist, to be honest. Anything that helps me express myself. From 1969, Cosy was a core member of the experimental performance art collective Coom Transmissions, along with musicians Peter Sleazy Christofferson, Chris Carter and Genesis P. Orridge. In 1976, they would evolve into the collective Throbbing Gristle. So where did they sit in relation to punk? We're definitely not punk. In fact, when we performed the Throbbing Gristle, punks really didn't like us. Because we weren't punk. We weren't a rock band. We didn't have a drummer. We had a drum machine. We didn't have like three chords of rock and roll. Nothing like that. We were very, very different. But the, the strange thing was that what we had in common 
was transgression, and that was great. So the punk movement was transgressive. Throbbing Gristle Industrial Records were transgressive. And we had loads of friends in the punk movement, <laughs> strangely enough. Sleazy took the first publicity photographs of the Sex Pistols. That's Throbbing Gristle member Peter Christofferson. And he also did a window display for a boy boutique down the King's Road because a friend of ours from Hull actually ran that and he formed the band Chelsea that became Generation X with Billy Idol. And us Throbbing Gristle, we went along and auditioned them for the band. So we were kind of like involved with the punk scene really closely, but we were nothing like them. But we, we had an understanding that we the punk scene and us were both like wanted to break down boundaries and do something new and express ourselves and our discontent and basically what everyday life was like for people and not romantic songs and all the rest of it. The reality of life, I think. Throbbing Gristle gave their first performance in October 1976 at an ICA exhibition called Prostitution. The show included documentation of Coombe actions, performances and happenings that Coombe transmissions had put on over the years. It also included a solo piece by Cozy called Magazine Actions, a series of framed pages from pornographic magazines featuring photos of Cozy herself working as a model. So how did she come up with the idea? I was part of the whole male art scene, which is where artists freed themselves from galleries and did artworks on postcards or in letters or even bigger, even on bricks and sent them through the post. So they challenged the postal system as well as the gallery system. And this had been going on for a few years. And there came a point where people started using sex magazines, pornographic imagery on their um, collages and things. And I was looking at these and I was collecting things as well. There was a really good shop in Hull that I used to go to that had vintage magazines, which I was really drawn to. I'd also seen a film about a nude model and I was watching that. And I'm thinking, this is really interesting because I saw the other side of the magazines that I'd been using to collage. And here was the model that was the subject in my collage work. And that's what really sparked the idea of me doing it, as well as the fact that I'm using other women's photographs in my collage work. And it would be much better and make me feel better in myself if I actually was a subject of that. And it would make everything really come together well. So... um that's what I did. I, I thought, right, I'll go out and I'll do some nude photography work for magazines, get published so that then I can cut them up and collage them like I am doing now. The whole thing turned out to be a lot more complicated than she had expected. I think people have um, they misconstrue what the sex industry was like. They just think that you did it through a friend and they'd just take anyone. But they didn't. They were really choosy. You had to dress well. You had to have the right clothes for the photo shoots. They didn't supply the clothes. It was a job in itself, as well as my art project. But that was what interested me as much as anything else, because I didn't anticipate that. That was fascinating as much as the whole experience of being photographed and everything that went along with it. Did she get involved in directing the shoots and deciding storylines? No, this was all about, for me, it was all about being a model like all the other models, it wasn't about me being an artist. I didn't want them to know I was an artist. I didn't want them to know why I was there because then they would treat me just like they did everyone else. It was me surrendering to the whole process involved with the sex industry. Otherwise, I wouldn't get a true published image from my collage. 
you know, be contaminated, really, you know, from where I was looking at it. That's not what I wanted. I wanted me, just like everyone else, had been modelling for these magazines. Although the project started out as being about creating collage material, it soon evolved into something else. With the whole process, everything kind of like feeds your idea of what you want to do and also how you want to present it and the reality of what you're doing. Because I was a performance artist, as they started coming through these magazine auditions and then the publications, they were documentation of my actions as an artist. You know, me infiltrating the sex industry in my own right, but also as another model. I got to know all the other models and it was a whole other world. And it changed my um, perspective on it and also my direction in how I want to present it. As the magazines came out, Cozy bought copies to use for collage, but also as documentation of her magazine actions. An opportunity to show her magazine actions came in 1976, when Coombe were approached by Ted Little, the director of the ICA. When the ICA show was first offered to us, it was for a male art show, then it was for a retrospective of Coombe's show. And then Ted Little said, we can include your magazines. And I said, that would be brilliant, because what we were doing was we were transitioning from the art world into music with Throbbing Gristle. And so the ICA show became the retrospective as well as everything else all in one. They decided to call the show Prostitution after the title of the first publication in Cozy's magazine Actions. But the title fitted the show for other reasons too. That was how we were perceiving the art world at that time, was that artists were more like prostitutes, just producing work for sale, selling themselves out basically. This is how we felt about it at the time. It was changing the radical side of the art scene seemed to be disappearing, like when it became YBA, not long after, you know. The YBA Cozy just mentioned refers to young British artist, a term coined in the late 1980s that has come to be associated with artists such as Tracy Emin, Sarah Lucas and Damien Hirst. But back to Cozy. She set about framing her magazine actions to go on the gallery walls, not anticipating the commotion this would cause. It's, it's weird because you're into that scene, you don't see a problem with it. It's only when it jumps outside that and it's put in a different context that you sort of realise, well, why is there a problem with it? You know, I didn't understand why there was a problem with it. Maybe I was naive, I've no idea, but I just believed art was art and it was free to be exhibited and this was my art and it should be on the walls. Ted rang up one day and said, we've got a problem with the magazines. They said, if we put them on the wall, the exhibition is not going ahead. This was because of obscenity laws. So what happened was they instigated a membership of the ICA because it's a work around the law of viewing pornography, like either in clubs or through shops and things, where if you're a member and you pay an entrance fee, then you can see it's legal. So that's how they got around it. But they couldn't go on the walls. They had to go in a separate room and you have to request to see them and pay a fee and be a member of the ICA. So it was like a three-step process to go and see my art, whereas everything else was on the walls. How did Cozy react to this? I mean, I was furious. Obviously, I was furious, and I was really disappointed that I wasn't backed up by my partner at the time. In fact, he was really angry that my magazines could destroy the exhibition of his work, which really made me even more angry, to be honest, considering the the show was named after one of my magazines and they weren't even going to be on the wall. 
Cozy's partner at the time was fellow Coombe member Genesis P. Orridge. There was a lot of press getting to us and ringing and coming to the door and everything. They were getting in touch with my parents. They were getting in touch with shopkeepers around the corner. It was just hysterical. There was an irony to all this hysteria around work that was being censored. Prostitution exhibition became renowned and known for my magazines and my used tampons, which were used in coom actions. So those were the two things that were centred on that exhibition, which is ironic, really, because you try and shut me down and then all of a sudden you're saying, well, what is the show about? Yeah, it's about me. <laughs> the show exposed massive double standards around the laws on pornography. The other actions were all coom actions. And the coom actions, a lot of them involved nudity full-on nudity of me and two guys. And that didn't seem to be a problem. But the minute you bring in something that is supposed to be private and personal, well, mainly to men, because that's what the market was delivering to, then you couldn't show it. It was pornographic, you know, because that had a different purpose. I think it had a lot to do with the purpose of those magazines that they were top shelf. They were supposed to be kept in the bedroom and kept under the bed or whatever else for men to use and read. And whereas the other coom nude actions were, I suppose, in inverted commas, art. But mine was art too. They were my art actions, but they were taken into the mainstream for me to be able to then bring them into the gallery. It was an incredibly radical thing to do in the mid-1970s, to bring sex work into the gallery in this way. But did Cozy see her magazine actions as groundbreaking? I never thought of it in terms of breaking any um, boundaries or anything like that. It was just something I wanted to do and it was important to me. My sexuality was important to me. Women's sexuality and how they're portrayed was important as well. And as well as how men saw women. how they perceived them as sexual objects. I'd dived away from feminism because at the time when I was working, feminism just did not speak for me at all. It was too prescriptive and I wanted to be free. I wanted to be out there doing what I wanted to do and if I wanted to use my body to do this work, it was my choice, it was my right to do that. And that's how I looked at it. Cozy went on to do a project that she called Incognito, where she took on striptease work under the name Scarlet. What I loved about the whole striptease thing was the dancing. I hadn't danced since I was 17. I'd been in, the, in this art scene where, you, you know, unless you go to parties and dance around, very different. And suddenly I got to party every lunchtime and in the evening. The guys were like, a, you know, by the way, yeah, I'm stripping off, but this is a great, you know dancing to Patti Smith because the night and things like that was really uplifting. And Joan Armour Trading was one of my favourite ones. Drop the Pilot was just like, that got me really excited every time I danced to it. So they were joyous moments doing striptease, really joyous. And the music was the reason. Because the costumes were so key to the whole striptease world for me, I wanted to document them because I made a lot of them. Some of them even had things that had been used in coom actions. So it was like a real crossover for me. She set up a photo shoot with Sleazy. We'd worked together as coom and done actions together, some of those naked actions together. And he knew my mindset. And he was a really great photographer working for Hypnosis doing record sleeves. So I went to a Hypnosis studio and we set up just a very plain background. 
and I went through all my costumes, told him how I wanted him to photograph me because they had to be quite just straightforward, nothing performative so much, so that you could see how the costumes functioned. I had to show not just like, oh, this is a nice little outfit, nice dress. I had to show how it came off because the reveal was everything in that job, you know, as you would expect. It was a special shoot for Cozy, but she didn't have the chance to do anything with the slides until very recently. It was special because we had a, we had a very personal relationship. I wanted him to do it because, because he was gay and he didn't have any other agenda. Unlike all the other photographers that I'd done work for in the sex industry or in the guys that I performed to. So he could just do it, take my direction, not think twice about, well, you know, can you just make this a bit sexier? That wasn't the object of the whole session. While Cozy was working on her magazine and striptease actions, women in punk were also exploring sex work, sometimes directly and sometimes through its aesthetics, and challenging attitudes of the time to women's sexuality. Here's Caroline Kuhn again. Part of the narrative of women in the punk movement was how to express our sexuality without it killing us. Because what happens when women express our sexuality, it means that we are therefore signalling that we are available. So in the 60s, we were expressing our sexuality, our freedom, with miniskirts, which was immediately interpreted by the patriarchy. Oh, there are available. But so what the punks did, um, how and I trace this whole discourse about how women can claim their sexuality, whatever our sexuality is, is how to do it safely. Punk fashions, involving fetish and bondage gear, was one example of how women were reclaiming their sexuality on their own terms. And Caroline addressed this whole subject in her painting Between Parades. It shows a group of women in a room resting, some doing their hair or painting their nails, most just sitting around. Between Parades is where the women are all together taking a break from the performance that we have to give when we're on parade in the public space. I'm setting it in the brothel which is an allegory for how women are considered in society at large, that any expression of our sexuality makes us whores, and therefore men can do anything they like with us. They can sexually abuse us, they can rape us, because what do you expect? If you're a sexual, if you express your sexuality, you deserve anything that's coming to you, because as religion says, sexuality is a sin. So all that comes in. So the painting's allegorical, but also of my lived experience, because I've decided when I'm broke, I'd rather be a whore than a wife, because that was the option held out to me when I was 21 in the 60s. You're a beautiful woman. Just keep your mouth shut and get married. (laughs) So uh, having seen my grandmother's marriage, what she had to sacrifice of her artistic talents, and seeing what my mother had to, as an upper-class woman, sacrifice for her artistic talents... You know, never allowed to earn money, never allowed to be in the public space. There were, you know, ladies. You know, I wasn't going to do that. If I was extremely broke and needed to save my studio from repossession, I'm going to do some sex work. Because I'd rather do sex work for an hour than do it as a wife days on end. 
much like the commercialisation of the art world that we'll hear about in future episodes, by the early 1980s the music industry was changing. Here's Gina Birch reflecting on this and how it affected her art practice. You'll remember her talking at the very start of this episode about the film she made at art school called Three Minute Scream. The other thing I did was I jumped through these giant paper screens. So I'd tape these bits of newsprint to these large screens and I'd run at them and jump through them. And that was like just kind of breaking through and not really knowing what membrane you're breaking through or where you're going or if if you can. Because as you approach this wall of paper, you might just bounce back. They might say, no, you can't. But actually, I found I could. This wasn't just about jumping through a paper screen. Gina relates it to her experience with the raincoats. The thing is that you've given yourself permission, you've jumped through, and then what? And then you get beaten down, or then you pick yourself up and carry on. Well, you try and pick yourself up and carry on, and then you've got the next hurdle. And culture changes, the politics change, punk kind of dissipated. And new romantics came and they were so concerned, it felt to me, with what they looked like. And boys made better girls than girls, you know, when Boy George became the best girl around. It was a whole different set of ideas around. And then I I got quite into Cindy Sherman and the idea that one could tell different stories. One could be all these different women. Cindy Sherman is an artist from the United States, best known for her photographic self-portraits, where she dresses up and inhabits different characters. So it became this idea then that it was very 80s that you could be in a power-dressing, shoulder-padded woman in a suit, all dressed up and ready to go. Or you could be, you could be whoever you chose to be. In a way, that whole idea of the kind of feminism that I was interested in felt very dissipated. And there was this whole other thing, you know, where, where money became worshipped and women were about power in a way that didn't feel right to me. You know, it was a kind of weird kind of power. It felt a very masculine power dressed up with lipstick and big shoulders. And in a way, maybe for a lot of women, that was an entry point to something very powerful. But for me, it kind of, it killed off something. Punk felt to me, and the punk I existed in, seemed to be a much more egalitarian, inclusive, DIY, anyone can do it kind of thing. But when the 80s happened and Thatcherism, there seemed to be a lot more about kind of money and professionalism and glamour and you needed a lot of money. Money was very important. And within punk, money hadn't been the driving force at all for many of us. It had been about creativity and activity and energy. Independent music would make a comeback in the 1990s, with the Riot Girl movement taking on a feminist position. And over the years, feminism itself would develop to be more open and to champion diversity. 
Here's Cozy Fanny Tutti again. Feminism now and in the subsequent years has had to be more inclusive, which I think is is incredibly important. But I don't know what we can do to sort of like replace this word feminism in a way that includes everybody. It's a strange thing. I think it's become a word that kind of gives people um, the wrong idea about certain things. It's very difficult for me because I don't call myself a feminist, but I know that I've been accepted as a feminist. And that doesn't that I fully embrace. I don't mind. I've, whatever I've done that's made people feel that they can go out there and do their thing as a woman or as a feminist, then I'm really happy with that. I, that's the only thing I've done in life, and that's great because I, I feel everybody should feel like I do about your place in the world. Your chosen place in the world is important, not your given place or your expected place. In our next two episodes, we'll hear about how many women of colour mobilised against racism and discrimination in the 1970s and 80s. We'll also hear how artists challenged the ways that art and art history were being taught and how they expressed the politics and realities of their experiences through their work. We were exposed to a climate in which fascists were given purchase and protected by the police to walk up and down our streets, demanding the repatriation of British subjects who were black and brown. I've done performance work where I actually shredded Gombrich's history of art. There's no women in it. There's certainly no black women in it, so it's not a history of art. The Women in Revolt podcast series was made possible by the generous support of Labena Hamid. It was conceived of by me, Lindsay Young, and it was produced by Rosie Oliver of Ticker Tape Productions, who researched, conducted and recorded all of the interviews. It features music from White Mice by the Medettes. Women in Revolt, Art and Activism in the UK, 1970-1990, is on at Tate Britain from the 8th of November 2023 to the 7th of April 2024 at National Galleries of Scotland Modern, Edinburgh, from 25th of May 2024 to the 26th of January 2025, and at the Whitworth University of Manchester from 7th of March to the 24th of August 2025. The exhibition is supported by the Women in Revolt Exhibition Supporters Circle, Tate International Council, Tate Patrons and Tate Members.